I've been passionate about justice um, pretty much my whole life. My mom says I was born that way. Um, I, I know for a fact that I staged my first sit-in when I was in first grade because <laughs> I went to a school um, and about halfway through this, the, the year, a new student joined our class. And our practice was that every single day on lunch break, we'd play kickball. And this new student was sight impaired. And so she could not play kickball. And I instinctively just said, well, if Melissa can't play kickball, ain't nobody gonna play kickball. And so um, I lined everybody up against the wall um, outside the school for three straight lunch periods, three days, until we were able to devise a game that Melissa could participate in. And it was, I just, I even remember the, the yard duties being so puzzled by this because I was just, I was so set that we weren't gonna play without Melissa. And I think they were like, I don't know, can we punish her for being inclusive? I, you know, like what's, how do we handle this dilemma here? Um, but we eventually found, a, found out a game um, that worked for her. And you know, I, I don't think my theology at that time, um, I don't think I had a theology of the Trinity, a theology that we're all interconnected, a theology that if Melissa can't participate, really none of us are participating. Um, but I certainly instinctively knew that, and it was partly probably because um, I, I knew what it was like to be an outsider. I was uh, a, a young black female student at a predominantly uh, Mexican immigrant school. It just happened that way. So uh, we learned Spanish more than we learned English when we were kids, which was great. Um, but I also had, been, had, had, had already had some negative experiences, particularly in the church. I was called a nigger for the first time when I was five at Vacation Bible School. And so um, I kind of knew what it was like to be on the outside. I knew what it was like when I didn't feel like people were standing in solidarity with me or were connected to me. And I instinctively felt that when I met Melissa. And so I got, I got busy, I got to work. And you know, it's interesting because as I've grown up and as I've seen um, the troubles that we experience here in the church along all issues of division, I'm not just, not just race, but certainly race is on our mind right now in a very powerful way, in a way that I think is a Kairos moment, an opportunity for us to be different as the church, but certainly all areas of division along lines of gender and sexuality and class and race and nationality and political perspectives. And I'm so grateful that we have a theology that helps us out, if we choose to listen to it. I'm so grateful that we have a Lord, that we have a friend, that we have a partner in this process who has shown us the way, if we choose to listen to it. But I think that really requires that we rethink the way that we even think about our faith, that this individualistic, um, I'm gonna focus on what I can get, what my family can get, sort of perspective on race that has served some people well for a really long time um, is one that we're being invited to rethink. The text for this morning is one of my favorite texts and I can't, I can't listen to it without being convicted over and over again. And even this morning, um, as I was listening to it again, I was thinking, oh wow, something happened last week that I probably need to think a little bit more deeply about in light of this text. Um, and how I'm, my heart is oriented towards other people. I'm gonna read it to you all in um, a, different, a different version. It's called The Voice. I know it's not a real translation, but we're gonna read it anyway. Um, if you find any comfort from being in Jesus the Anointed, if God's love brings you some encouragement, 
if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, if God's tenderness and mercy fill your heart, then brothers and sisters, here is one thing that would complete my joy. Come together as one in mind and spirit and purpose, sharing in the same love. Don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility and lift your heads to extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves in protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests first. I'm going to read the next line. If, in other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed. Unfortunately, we won't really get into that, that part where Paul shares this beautiful poem on um, kenosis. I'm going to let you all study that yourself, but Paul sort of um, sticks it to us by saying, in other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed, because that raises the bar. But it's okay. The bar is raised high enough, and we'll talk about it in this passage. I just returned on Sunday night from um, a conference in Avila, um, Spain, and it was on um, the spirituality and theology of Teresa of Avila. And I don't know if you're familiar with her or not, but um, she was a force in her own right. She led the Re Reformation within the Carmelites. Um, she and St. John of the Cross were homies and did a lot of damage together, which was really fun to see a, cro a powerful cross-gender um, collaboration like that. Um, and she was, a, she was quite a theologian. That's, one of the, that's why she's one of the four, I think, female doctors of the church. And so um, her contributions were powerful. One of the things that uh, one of the talks was about this past week was um, her understanding of our love for God. And uh, essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, Teresa said, you know, we'll never really know if you love God because how, how can we measure that, how much you love God? How we'll know is how, how well you love others. That will be... The, um, that, that, that will be our metric. And Paul is essentially saying the same thing here in, in Philippians. He's saying, if you find any comfort from being in Jesus the anointed, if God's love brings you some encouragement, if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, then here's one thing that would complete my joy, be, be one of mind and spirit. Now what's interesting about this first verse here is Paul, in a very sneaky way, is drawing our attention to the Trinity. He's saying if there's any, if you, if you're any, if you receive any comfort from the anointed Jesus, if God's love, the Father, the Creator, brings you any encouragement, and if you experience true companionship with the Spirit, that's the third one. So he's saying this is the type of love that I'm talking about. He's not saying this is the kind of love where, you know, you write somebody a check because you feel sorry for them. This is not the kind of love where you kind of sort of know someone's story, um, but you're not particularly walking in solidarity with them. This is not the kind of love where you send someone a Christmas card. This is the love of the Trinity. This is the relationship of the Trinity. So he's saying this is the standard that I'm setting for you as you think about what it means to, to be in loving community with each other. Let's look to the Trinity. If you get that love, then that should transform you. Trinitarian love has been studied since the fourth century. It's a different way of thinking about our lives. It's a, it's a different way of thinking about um, the, the relationship of the Trinity. And so theologians use the term perichoresis a lot. This idea that there's a, a mutual indwelling, a reciprocal interiority between the members of the Trinity, so much so that the Father ceases to exist as we understand the Father without being in relationship with the Son. The Spirit doesn't exist as we understand it without being in relationship 
with the Son. They're all so intertwined. There's an interdependence. There's a mutuality. I impact you and you impact me. You determine my identity. You inform my identity. You inform my perspective on life. Your gifts are my gifts. Your challenges are my challenges because we are all one, and that's what love looks like. And so if we have any comfort from understanding that love, Paul encourages us, invites us, exhorts us to be of one mind and one spirit, sharing in the same love. One of the things that's so beautiful about Paul to me is that he's a social psychologist like me. Um, because he so, uh, he so understands the way human identity works. He knows that we are instinctively capable of participating in this perichoresis. And it makes sense theologically, right? If we're created in the image of God, of course we're created for relationship. But one of the things that social psychologists have found is that when we're in close relationship with each other, our self expands. I would say literally, but there's no such thing as a literal self. So I'll say figuratively, expands. Because what is the self, right? We're not going to get into that. But <laughs> we, what we do know is whatever it is, it expands. And so if I'm in close relationship with my housemate, all of a sudden, her perspective, her knowledge, her gifts are now calculated in my own resource in my, in my own calculation of my, my resources. So if someone says, you know, Christina, how do you feel about this political issue that's, that's um, impacting Nigerian immigrants and refugees? My housemate who's Nigerian has told me a lot about her experiences and has invited me to walk in solidarity with her. And so that changes my perspective. And now I'll say, well, I think this. I won't say, well, my, my housemate thinks this. I'll say, I think this. Because now all of a sudden, her perspective is part of my own perspective. If I'm willing to be impacted by her perspective, if I'm willing to receive the mutual interiority that she's offering me in our perichoresis love, but Paul moves along in this passage, and he says, be of one mind, be of one spirit. Now, we, um, we, we often interpret this passage as saying, oh, well, we should all think the same, and we should all experience life the same, and it's kind of a call for assimilation and um, sameness and the goodness, the goodness that comes from sameness. But of course, Paul's not saying that. The way I think of this is... Paul is inviting us into sharing brain space with each other. Paul is inviting us to allow the other person, to allow the other people, to allow the other experience inhabit, invade our own understandings. It's a, it's a receptivity. You know, I... Um, I'm teaching uh, three classes at Duke Divinity this fall. One of them meets in um, Central Prison, which is the Raleigh Maximum Security Prison in, um, in North Carolina. I, think it's, I actually think it's a federal prison. But um, the class is Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And so we get into really intense conversations. And about two-thirds of my students are um, currently incarcerated men, and the other third are male Duke Divinity students. So we have class in the prison every week. 
And one of the things that comes up so often in this class is how much we're not sharing brain space. I have no idea why my students are in, um, are incarcerated right now. Um, I made a commitment not to Google them because they can't Google me. Um, but I do know enough about the mass incarceration problem that we have in our country to probably make some assumptions about the, the consequences of injustice that have probably contributed to their being there. But there's such a divide between how I experience the world and how they experience the world. And if I'm not willing to allow them to inhabit my heart and my mind, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm so um, persistent in believing that there must be, that I know, there must be a reason why they're there, and I know. And what's interesting is um, when I initially um, was invited to teach this class, not this particular class, they invited me to teach any class, and I said, well, obviously I'm gonna teach Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, because how, how can I not? Um, I also wanted to add the new Jim Crow to it, which um, the prison did not um, approve that text. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, <laughs> so I'm just teaching from it, but we're not actually reading it. Um, but I remember talking to my uncle, who's been incarcerated for the past 25 years, um, who just got out in California. And I said, yeah, I'm going to teach this class, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and the new Jim Crow. And he's like, yeah, they're never going to let you teach that. And I said, yeah, they will. I get it. I, I understand. I mean, I'm a professor at Duke. How can they not? And he's like, they're not going to let you. And then sure enough, he was right. He was right. And it's interesting that even this past summer when I was talking to him, I refused to take his word as truth. I still knew better. As, the as a formerly educated one, as the one who's been on the outside, as the one who experiences the world really differently than he does. It's interesting how much privilege, like the kind that I have, makes us think that we know what's best, that we know better than other people. And I had to call him up and say, yeah, Uncle Tony, you were right. I should have listened to you. You were right. He's like, of course I was right. I was in there for 25 years. I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but here's the thing, and this is why Paul says, be of one mind, be of one spirit. He's inviting us into perichoresis. But he, he, he points out a, a potential issue, and it's one that I just illustrated in my own life. He says, don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Paul knows there's this thing about ourself, that even though we have great capacity to be an interdependent, mutual relationship with each other, we also have great capacity to not choose that. We're actually inclined to not choose that. And one of the things that I've studied as a social psychologist, so much of my work is on identity and groups, and one of the things we know about group identity in particular is that it's so closely related to self-esteem. It's intertwined. And self-esteem is an interesting animal in the sense that we, like the self, don't really know what it is or what it we don't really know what it is. Um, there are actually huge arguments in the field about whether it's more affective, is it how you feel about yourself, or is it more cognitive, how you evaluate yourself, is it some combination of the two? It's actually so intense that people have built their entire careers on trying to discount the other side's perspective. And not too long ago, two faculty members who are really well known um, in the field on this got into a fist fight 
because they're on the they're on the same faculty in the hallway. They just got because it's that serious, right? Um, is it how you feel or is it how you think about yourself? Um, so we, there's a lot of discord in the field on what exactly self-esteem is, but one thing we can all agree on is that it's really, really important. It's so important that we will um, we will seek to preserve it at all costs. It doesn't matter how irrational we're being. It doesn't matter how, um, how um, what's the word I want to use? Oh, it's um, how like non-strategic it is <laughs> to try to maintain our self-esteem, how it's not helpful. Like we actually need information sometimes that might, might temporarily hurt our self-esteem, but in the long run is helpful information. Um, it doesn't matter. And so we're, we have these natural self-serving biases that make, that prevent us from taking any hits on our self-esteem, and we're really good at it. And we, this happens outside of our, our conscious awareness. So um, in the US and in, the, in most Western countries, the evidence, is, um, it, the evidence supports this. On, on average, Americans think that they have high self-esteem. Americans feel pretty good about themselves. And part of this is because of these self-serving biases. We, we interpret ambiguous situations in ways that make us feel good. So um, right now that, now that I'm at Duke Divinity, I don't really um, give a lot of exams, but when I taught undergrads, which I did for the first seven or eight years of my teaching career, um, I gave lots of exams, of course. And if a student failed my exam, who got blamed for it? <laughs> Me, right? I mean, I've been accused of staying up all night long so I could come up with trick questions, so I can ruin their GPA. Um, I've been accused of being a terrible communicator, and you know, if you had just taught me better, I would have, I would have excelled on this exam. Um, I've been, I've been accused of so many things, and I can't even take it personally because I know I'm like, oh, little undergrad, <laughs> you're just preserving your self-esteem. Like that's just normal, right? I mean, I really don't even take it personally. It's kind of cute. I'm like, oh, this is like self social psychology happening right in front of me. Um, <laughs> But if, if someone, like on the next exam, does well, who gets the credit for that? <laughs> they do, right? No one's ever come to me and said it's because of your expertise and giftedness and wonderfulness as a professor that I am doing well in this class now. Thank you. Thank you, right? No one ever says that. And that's normal. These are just self-serving biases. We want to feel good about ourselves. We do it in the, how we compare, too, right? Um, if someone asks me, how smart are you? I'm not going to use Albert Einstein as a point of comparison, because then I'm not that smart. So I'll choose someone else. I'll be like, oh, well, compared to Kim Kardashian, I'm like a, a genius. Um, and so we choose who we're going to compare ourselves to. We do this all the time in the church. That denomination is getting it wrong. Those people don't have their hearts in the right place. And that's the point of comparison, and then we feel good about ourselves. Now, the thing is, is self-esteem is already something that we protect individually. But when, self, when we get into groups, we want to protect our group. Because our group identity overlaps with our sense of self. And so I want to feel good about my group so that I can feel good about myself. And so all the self-serving biases turn into group-serving biases. And now I'm really defensive about my group. I don't want, I want to compare my group to groups that are failing in some way. 
If, it's, if, if there's an ambiguous situation, I want to preserve the integrity of my group and how I evaluate that situation. And research has shown that we choose to engage with some groups, so we choose to um, bask in reflected glory when we can. We want, we want to associate ourselves with high-status groups that look good, and we want to distance ourselves from low-status groups that perhaps are not valued as much in our society because it impacts our self-esteem, and we want to feel good about ourselves. And so there are ways in which we'll distance ourselves from other people rather than engaging in perichoresis, which is really our pathway to salvation, which is really our pathway to God's love, to experiencing God's love. I'm going to quickly, quickly tell you about one, one study that shows this so powerfully. You know, to a certain extent, we can choose who we want to associate with. That, that, that varies depending on what, what group you're talking about and um, whether it's a group that's malleable or not, or it's a group that you can, ex you know, leave or not, and that's not always the case. But one thing that social psychologists have found is that if we are experiencing negative um, self or lower self-esteem, a decrease in self-esteem for some reason or another, the most effective way that we can feel better about ourselves is actually by derogating another group member. So not someone who's part of our group, but derogating one of them. And this research is so um, convicting to me because it shows up in really insidious ways. But let me tell you about it first, really quickly. So um, the research who did this study, it's a classic study now, is conducted in the 90s, but it's been replicated so many times all over the place. But the researchers who did the study conducted it at Williams College, which is a small liberal arts college in Massachusetts. It's very prestigious, hard to get into. Um, and so they decided that um, they wanted to test this hypothesis. If people's self-esteem has just recently taken a hit, and then they're given an opportunity to derogate somebody who's different than them, will they take that opportunity? And then also, what happens to their self-esteem? Does their self-esteem rebound? And so what they did is they took Williams College white female Christian students, and they gave them a bogus IQ test, which if you haven't taken social psych, you might not know bogus IQ, but social psych is, all, is full of deception. And as a PK, I love that. Um, and so you just have to justify it. So um, uh, what they did is they gave them an IQ test. And basically, they said, um, you're going you're gonna to take an IQ test. But they didn't actually score them. They just had randomly predetermined who was going to fail and who was going to succeed. So this is where they're, they're, they're manipulating people's self-esteem. Because college students um, like to think of themselves as smart. And so if you tell them that they have a high IQ, then their self-esteem should remain intact. If you tell them that they have a really low IQ, give them that feedback, there, sh there should be a decrease in self-esteem. So this is kind of setting up the study. And so they did this, and um, half the people were randomly told, you, you know, you're great, you're like the 99th percentile, I can see how you got into Williams College, good job. And then the other, others were told, you're actually at the 30th percentile. And then the, the feedback was really, it kind of stuck it to them. They were like, how did you get in here? Um, like, are you sure you're supposed to be here? You know, so kind of just really challenging them. And so then you see a decrease in self-esteem. Now, 
Next, which is the crux of the study, you know, they said, well, the study's over now, but we want to we switch to another study, um, a completely different one, which is code and social psychology for this is exactly the same study, <laughs> and we're still observing you, right? So um, they said, we are really interested in how people make decisions about hiring new employees. And so we're going to give you a resume, and we're going to give you a picture of someone and a job description, and you just need to, you know, evaluate this resume. Is this person qualified? Would you want to hire them? Would they fit in? Um, and then also some personal questions. Would you want to be friends with them? Do they seem like nice people? And so they gave every person in the study. Now remember, half the people in the study have low self-esteem now, half have fine self-esteem. And so they gave everyone in the study the exact same resume in terms of content and qualifications. The only thing they changed was the name of the person on the resume. And so um, half the people got a woman who, was, who had a Christian name, and half the people got a woman who had a Jewish name. And then they also gave them a picture, and the picture was exactly the same, same woman. The only thing that varied was the people who got the Christian woman, um, she had a cross around her neck, and the people who got the Jewish woman, she had a Star of David around her neck. So they're manipulating. Am I evaluating someone who's like me, or am I evaluating someone who's not like me? And what they found was that people who had high self-esteem evaluated the Jewish and the Christian woman equally. They're like, she's great, she's qualified, let's hire her, she seems like a nice person, I'd love to be her friend, how are we not already friends, you know, kind of like that. But the people who had low self-esteem evaluated the Jewish woman significantly more negatively than the Christian woman. Same resume, same person, it's just now she's one of them, so now she's not great, she's not qualified. And what's interesting is right after that, they measured their self-esteem and they found that the people who had had low self-esteem and then derogated the Jewish woman saw an increase, a huge leap in their self-esteem and it was actually higher than their average self-esteem throughout the entire semester. So they're feeling good, it's like a high, it's like a self-esteem high from derogating this Jewish woman. And what's fascinating to me about this study and the follow-ups is that she didn't, they didn't do any, they didn't say anything that we would call explicitly racist. They didn't say anything that we would even notice necessarily. They didn't say, you know, we should torch the Jewish temple or, you know, like get rid of all the kosher food in the dining hall or do something that, that we would see as, oh, that's discrimination. All they did is they said things like, well, you know, she doesn't really seem that interesting. She doesn't really seem that qualified. She doesn't seem like she's quite up to par for this job. And really it gives us insight into something that we call infrahumanization. It's a very, very subtle way of dehumanizing others without even specifically mentioning them. Dehumanization is all about ascribing uniquely human characteristics to my group, the implication being that group doesn't have them. That group's less human than my group. So I see this all the time um, as I do my work in reconciliation. So for example, a uniquely human characteristic is like um, rash, rational thinking, logical thinking. Humans have higher order cognitive processing abilities. We have a, a huge prefrontal cortex compared to most animals, and that's what distinguishes us from other animals, is we are, we are able to be logical and rational. So it's really interesting when I hear 
white Christians or middle-class Christians or folks who are not standing in solidarity with people saying things like, I, I feel like I'm looking at the Milwaukee riots rationally. Didn't even mention the folks on the ground, probably low income, predominantly black. Didn't even have to say they're not being rational. All I had to do was say, my group's being rational. The implication being theirs isn't. Implication being they're less human than we are. Another way that we do this is by um, ascribing guilt and shame to our group only. And so I hear people often saying, I'd feel guilty if I lived, if I, if I lived on welfare for that many years. I'd feel guilty. The implication being they don't feel guilty. Guilt and shame are uniquely human emotions. If you can't feel guilt or you can't feel shame, you're like a sociopath. You know what I mean? Like you're... That's, that's something that we distinguish ourselves as. And I see it from the flip side, too, because I tend to run in kind of social justice services. So I hear people saying things like, I'd feel really ashamed if I had a house that big and no one living in all those rooms. I mean, with Syrian refugees and all that, how could they? You know, like I hear that, too. So it goes both ways. But what happens is every single time we infrahumanize, our self-esteem is bumped up and we're less likely to be participating in the perichoresis of the Trinity, where we're saying, your perspective, I'm actually gonna privilege your perspective over my perspective. I'm actually going to stand in solidarity with you so that it hurts me too when you're hurt. I'm actually going to, like Paul said, not let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. It's not gonna be all about how I feel about myself. I'm not going to see the death of someone like Terrence Crutcher and try to come up with every reason why he deserved it. Because it makes me feel better about myself. It makes me feel better about the fact that I haven't been targeted by the police. And there must be some, some fundamental difference between me and him in order to maintain my self-esteem. Paul's inviting us into something so much deeper and so much more beautiful. And I think I'm going to close as a benediction um, for this short sermon by inviting us to think about what Paul tells us to do after these first few verses that we read. He says, in other words, adopt the mindset of Jesus the anointed. Live with Jesus' attitude in your heart. Remember, though he was in the form of God, he chose not to cling to equality with God, but he poured himself out to fill a vessel brand new, a servant in form and a man in deed, the very likeness of humanity. He humbled himself, obedient to death, a merciless death on the cross. So God raised him up to the highest place and gave him the name above all. So when his name is called, every knee will bow in heaven, on earth and below, and every tongue will confess Jesus, the anointed one, is Lord, to the glory of God, our Father. Amen.